Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. Episode 32, featuring author and editor Ed Pawarczyk. We have a great August lineup coming your way to round out your summer holiday listening. On August 12th, we're going to bring you an interview with Edith Maxwell, McCavity and Agatha-nominated author of the Quaker Midwife Mysteries, Country Store, Local Foods, and other mystery series. On that day, we'll bring you a short story, The Peace of Mind Thief, from Five Scoops is an Addiction by Alec Carrick, Carrick Publishing. On August 19th, we're going to be speaking with Mike Rubin, the author of The Cotton Crest Curse and Cashed Out, and we'll be reading The Right Choice by Donna Carrick from 13 Claws by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing, 2017. And on August 26th, we'll bring you an interview with author Michelle Cox, A Girl Like You, A Ring of Truth, and our reading of Short Story Family Recipe by Catherine Astolfo from Starship Goodwords, Carrick Publishing, 2012. In addition to our interview today with Ed, we also bring you my reading of his story, Snake Bit, which appeared in the third Maydams of Mayhem anthology, 13 Claws, Carrick Publishing, 2017. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the Maydams of Mayhem, we are a community of Canadian crime writers who have banded together to help profile our work. To date, Carrick Publishing has produced three exceptional crime anthologies by the Maydams, 13, 13 O'Clock, and our most recent, 13 Claws. We have a fourth antho coming out in 2019, titled To Be Determined. These are fantastic genre anthologies, with stories ranging in subgenre from dark thrillers to light-hearted comedy and cozies. There's truly something for every crime lover between these covers, all professionally edited by today's guest, Ed Piwarczyk, and lovingly formatted and produced by yours truly of Carrick Publishing. So pop on over to www.maydamsofmayhem.com and get to know our authors, Catherine Dunphy, our leader, Catherine Estolfo, Rosemary O'Bear, Jane Burfield, M.H. Calway, our founder, Melody Campbell, myself, Donna Carrick, Lisa DeNicolitz, Cheryl Friedman, Marilyn Kay, Rosemary McCracken, Lynn Murphy, Mary M. Patterson, Ed Piwarczyk, Rosalind Place, Madonna Scaff, Caro Souls, Kevin Thornton, Sylvia Maltosh Warsh, and you can tweet with us at at Maydams Mayhem. Together we comprise a large cross section of the fabric of Canadian crime. Incidentally, on November 25th, episode 48, we'll be speaking with Ed's wife, another dear friend of mine, Rosemary McCracken, about her Pat Tierney mystery series of novels and short stories. Like myself and Alex, Ed and Rosemary are a writing duo, each working separately on their own projects, but coming together for editorial work, critiquing, and general support. And now I'm pleased to read for you from 13 Claws, Snake Bit by Ed Pawarczyk. Snake Bit by Ed Pawarczyk. 
Jake Turner studied the blonde as she entered the hideaway. Her denim shorts highlighted shapely legs and a white tank top accented perky breasts. A sexy package, he thought. With my luck, she's probably trouble with a capital T. Turner watched as the woman ran a hand through her short, slightly tousled hair and surveyed the bar. Its walls were adorned with sports memorabilia, celebrity photos, beer signs, and rock concert posters from the 60s and 70s, glory days for Steelsboro before the city had become a notch in America's rust belt. The hideaway was a down-at-the-heels shrine to those days gone by, and its patrons were workers from neighboring factories and warehouses. Turner had chosen their blue-collar uniform, jeans, black t-shirt, denim vest, to blend in with his surroundings. Yesterday, the bartender, Steve, had told him a woman had come in, put a couple of coins in the Wurlitzer on the back wall, punched in a few songs, and asked for the snake. Not here. Don't know when he'll be around, Steve had said. I'll leave a message anyway, she'd said. Tell the snake to be here tomorrow, and tell him to play B-12 if he wants to do business. Turner's antennae had gone up, but he needed to do business badly. He had only two more days to pay off his gambling debts to the mob. He gave Steve a quizzical look. Is this her? Steve nodded. Turner slid his six-foot-two-inch frame off the bar stool and strode over to the jukebox to punch in B-12. The blonde was poised to leave, but turned around and began to sway as the zombies, she's not there, pulsed through the Wurlitzer's speakers. Half a dozen mid-afternoon regulars studied her as she strolled to the jukebox, fished some change out of a blue leather tote bag, and punched in more picks. Turner picked up two cans of beer and two glasses and motioned her to a booth in the back. So, I finally meet the snake. She sat down across from him and poured herself a glass of beer. He took a drink. And you're? Mercedes, but most people call me Sadie. How did you hear about me? Let's just say I'm connected. Her sapphire eyes flicked to his right forearm. That why they call you the snake, fast and deadly? He glanced down at his tattoo, a diamondback rattlesnake with an oversized head, fangs bared, coiled and ready to strike. He nodded. You don't want to mess with me. She smiled and studied him. Ex-military? Uh-huh. I grew up as a military brat, so I can sense it. She swallowed some beer. A little too old for the field? I'm not as old as you think. He was pushing 50, but he prided himself on maintaining a ripped physique. Sadie nodded. All right, time to talk business. Her smile vanished and her eyes darkened. Here's the deal. I make your money problems go away. How can she know? What money problems, he said. Oh, come off it, she scoffed. If you didn't know some nasty people big time, we wouldn't be talking, right? Turner stared at her. Go on. 
As I was saying, I get rid of your debt right now. Then you take out someone for me. And there'll be something extra for you once the job's done. What kind of bonus? She smiled. It'll be a surprise. I should walk away, Turner frowned, but I can't afford to. Who's the target? He asked. We'll get to that after we've cleaned up your debt. That's your retainer, she paused. But if you agree, there's no turning back. You follow through with the hit. She leaned forward. You don't want to have any enforcers coming around to collect on your $100,000 debt, do you? Turner swallowed hard. How do you know? About your debt? Remember, I'm connected. She pulled a thin notebook computer out of her tote bag. I can make an electronic transfer immediately to whatever account you want. Deal? Turner hesitated. Accepting would be rolling the proverbial dice, and he was on a bad luck streak. But here was someone offering to pay off his marker. Maybe my luck's about to change, he thought. Deal, he said. He pulled a pen and a small notepad from his vest, scribbled, tore out a page, and passed it to her. Send the money there. Sadie started to key in the transfer, paused, and fixed her eyes on him. Just so you know, if you run off or something happens to me, I've got insurance to see you don't get far or live long. You got that? Is she bluffing? Turner thought of the goons pursuing him and decided he couldn't take the chance. Got it, he said. She finished typing and turned the laptop screen to face him. Okay by you? Turner reviewed the data on the screen and nodded. She left the computer sitting on the table. Who's the target? Her reply was matter of fact. Vito Valpone. Turner groaned. His luck hadn't changed. He was still snake bit. Do you know what you're asking? I'm not prepared to take down a mob, boss. He swallowed the last of his beer. It's a suicide mission. Valpone doesn't go around unprotected, and even if I pulled it off, his crew would be gunning for me. Count me out. He started to rise, but Sadie clamped a hand on his forearm. Sit down, she hissed. You'll do what I say, or you're a dead man. He couldn't turn away from her icy blue gaze and lowered himself back into his seat. He ran a hand over his graying buzz cut. What's your beef with Valpone? Can't you work whatever it is out with him? She shook her head. He doesn't forgive someone stealing from him. Turner blinked in disbelief. You? Sadie swallowed some beer. Yes, but he thinks it was my husband. My late husband, Charlie Evans. He was an accountant for Valpone. She put down her drink, started typing, and turned the computer screen toward Turner. Check this, she said. Car blast kills too, a headline trumpeted. Turner read the online report about the explosion in the driveway of a posh home and police finding the charred remains of two bodies identified as Charles Evans and his wife, Mercedes. No suspects, he muttered. Police are asking anyone with information. He finished reading and turned the screen back to Sadie. It says Mrs. Evans was killed, so who are you? I am Mercedes Evans. 
The woman in the car was a bimbo that Charlie planned to run off with once he'd helped himself to Valpone's cash. She gave a self-satisfied grin. But I tipped off Valpone, and here we are. Turner's mind was reeling. What kind of bullshit is this? No bullshit, she paused. Let me back up a bit to help you understand. He took a swig of beer. I'm listening. Like I said, I was a military brat. I was five when my dad was killed. Mom remarried, another military man. She was comfortable with that lifestyle. Of course, we moved around. The last stop for me before I finished high school was a base in Arizona. I went on to college out east, graduated with an economics degree, and landed a job with an accounting firm. That's where I met Charlie Evans. He was about nine years older than me and a star at the company. She closed her eyes and sighed. God, he was handsome. About as tall as you, dark hair and eyes, athletic build. I was flattered that he was paying attention to me. The next thing you know, we're married and living the good life. Fast cars, fancy clothes, posh home in an exclusive neighborhood. Foolish me, I thought I was set for life and I left the firm. So, one day, Charlie was running late for a meeting. He rushed out of the house and left his computer on. I was curious and started poking around in his files and emails. That's when I discovered he'd been cheating on me and that he was working for Volpone, not on all his accounts, but the ones Charlie handled and could access added up to a healthy seven figures. So you were mad at him for running around, Turner interrupted. Why not ask for a divorce? Because Charlie could afford a lawyer who would see that I didn't get a cent, Sadie glared at him. I wasn't going to leave empty-handed. She paused and asked, shall I proceed? Turner nodded. I didn't say anything about what I'd found. Instead, I waited to learn more, she continued. I couldn't count on Charlie to always be careless, so I found a hacker to get me into his computers, home and office and smartphone. While he was at it, he got me into all pawns as well. Passwords, emails, texts, files, and bank accounts were all at my fingertips. When I had what I needed, I confronted Charlie about the affair. I stormed out saying I was going to stay with my mother. I didn't, and that he'd hear from my lawyer. Chrissy, a redhead I'd seen around the office, moved into the house while I, unbeknownst to them, got an apartment under my maiden name. I kept an eye on Charlie's emails and texts. When I saw that Chrissy was pushing him to run off with Valpone's money, I put together what you'd call an improvised explosive device. Turner's eyes widened. You planted the car bomb? Hey, why look so surprised, Sadie replied. There's plenty of how-to information on the internet, and I picked up a lot living on military bases. When the blast went off, I moved Valpone's money into an account I had set up for myself. Then I called him. It's Mercedes Evans, Charlie's wife. He's going to run off with your money, I whispered, pretended that I was frightened. It wasn't my idea. I don't want to get in trouble with you. He's coming. I gotta go, I said to Valpone. Then I hung up. Unbelievable, Turner shook his head. Valpone thinks you and Charlie were both killed in the blast, and so do the police. Seems to me like you're in the clear. 
For now, Sadie answered. Right now the cops see this as a mob hit, but don't know whether Valpone or the chicken man is behind it. Turner nodded at the chicken man reference. The rival bosses of the city's underworld, Vito the Fox Valpone and Gino the Chicken Man, had fallen into an unspoken truce that allowed their criminal enterprises to flourish. Valpone's fuming, but he's too smart to go to war with Ciccone without hard proof, Sadie said. But at some point the cops will figure out it wasn't me in the car. They'll be looking for me. Then so will Valpone. She paused. Unless he's gone. Sadie swallowed the last of her beer. The way I figure it, once Valpone's dead, there will be a power struggle inside his gang. Ciccone will try to move in, and the cops will have their hands full with a mob war. That's when I'll disappear. Why me? I came across your name and your IOU in one of Charlie's files. I knew I'd need help, and I figured your military experience, yes, I looked that up, would be an asset. Suddenly she cocked her head at the strains of a new track on the jukebox. Credence Clearwater revivals run through the jungle. I just love CCR, don't you? Turner winced. They were good, but that song, he shook his head. He wasn't about to tell her that it brought back memories of a mission gone terribly wrong. Never mind. You were saying? She smiled. So I decided to buy your services, and as I told you, I have insurance, so don't cross me. Turner leaned back in his seat. I better play along for now, he thought. What's the plan? First, we fly to Arizona. Huh? She pointed at his tattoo to see some of those. We'll be there soon, Sadie said, as she guided a rental jeep around a rut in a dirt road in southeast Arizona. Turner snuck an admiring look at her legs. See something you like, Sadie grinned. Is that a sunburn or a blush? Damn, just drive, he grumbled as he looked out at the desert terrain. She gave a mock salute. Yes, sir. He turned back to her. I've been meaning to ask you since the airport. What's with your shirt? Her red t-shirt featured a woman's face, blank eyes like on a Greek statue, full lips, straight-edged nose topped with and framed by snakes instead of hair. She glanced at him, then back to the road. Medusa. Yeah, anyone who looked at her turned to stone, right, he said. Right. She stopped them dead in their tracks, you might say, she laughed. You trying to make some kind of statement, he said. No, I just like the design. I thought I should wear something to go with your tattoo. They drove in silence for a few minutes before Turner said, You still haven't told me why we're here. He looked around. Wherever here is. The base is over that way, she pointed her chin to the right. But we're headed for Rancho Rodriguez, about five more minutes. She said nothing more until they stopped at a driveway with an overhead sign announcing they'd arrived at Rancho Rodriguez. She proceeded down the drive and pulled up in front of a ranch-style bungalow with a screened-in veranda and an attached garage. A backhoe loader was parked beside it. 
A little to his right, Turner saw a gray cinder block building with a small porch. The front door of the house opened, and out stepped a Hispanic man, muscular, black hair, pencil mustache. He was about her height, five foot nine, he guessed. She hopped down from the jeep and ran to embrace him. Meet Mateo Rodriguez, she motioned Turner to come over. Best snake wrangler in Arizona. Rodriguez grinned and squeezed Turner's hand. Pleased to meet you, senor. Turner flinched and turned away from the small dark eyes in Rodriguez's weather-creased face that were boring into him. Then Rodriguez fixed his gaze on Turner's snake tattoo. El Serpiente del Cascabel. You like? he laughed. You have come to the right place. Turner flexed his fingers as Rodriguez released his grip. Rodriguez turned to the cinder block building and motioned to Turner and Sadie to follow him. Come, I have some work to do, Sadie. She has seen this many times, but you will find it interesting, senor. How did you meet this guy? Turner asked Sadie as they followed him. I used to ride horses out here when I was a teenager, Sadie replied. One day my horse got spooked by a rattler. I was thrown, but luckily for me, Mateo was in the area hunting for snakes. He captured the rattler, calmed my horse, and got me back to the base. The medic told me I was lucky I hadn't been bitten and only had a few scrapes and bruises. I looked Mateo up to thank him. He showed me around his place and explained what he did. I became fascinated with his snakes and his work and offered to help him in any way I could. This is a business, Turner said. Quite profitable, actually, she paused. I guess you could say Mateo became my mentor. I learned about snakes and the desert. We kept in touch after I went to college and after I married Charlie. Rodriguez stopped in front of the cinder block building. Mi casa de serpientes. Wait here, por favor. That's Mateo's snake house, she said. He's got about a dozen or more species in there, mainly rattlers, a couple of hundred snakes altogether. The interior is light and temperature controlled. Rodriguez emerged from the snake house with a few clear plastic bins, each holding a rattlesnake and a long-handled metal tongs with a C-shaped end. What's he gonna do? Turner asked. Milk them, Sadie laughed at Turner's puzzled look. Extract their venom. Using the tongs, Rodriguez lifted a snake about three and a half feet long from one of the bins. The rattler had brown blotches that stretched down its back and faded into white and black bands at its tail. That's a Mojave rattler, she said. It has the most potent rattlesnake venom, she paused. There are two strains of Mojave rattler venom. One strain, considered the more lethal, attacks the nervous system. The other destroys red blood cells. Some Mojaves have strains of both. How do you know this? A bit of research. I've learned to respect all rattlers. It's best to stay out of their way. Rodriguez placed the snake on a foam pad on a small table. At the table's edge was a glass funnel, its mouth covered by a thin, waxy membrane suspended over a vial. He grabbed the snake with his left hand and fit the snake's fangs over the side of the funnel. 
the rattler bit the membrane, releasing a yellowish venom. With his thumb and middle finger, he depressed two glands near the reptile's jaw to extract all the venom. Then he maneuvered the snake back into its bin. Rodriguez repeated the procedure with more snakes that hissed and rattled to signal their displeasure until the vial was about three-quarters full. All that trouble for that, Turner remarked. Oro, senor, Rodriguez replied as he capped the vial. Liquid gold, Sadie said. It's worth thousands. He freeze-dries it and ships it to clinics, labs, and universities. They use it for research to make anti-venom. Rodriguez beckoned them to follow him into the snake house. Come, let me show you my beauties. He ushered them in and stopped to place the vial in a compact fridge. Then he pointed to racks the length of the building along two walls and beamed. There are Mojaves, Western Diamondbacks, Sidewinders, Corals. That's it for me. The snake house was creeping Turner out. I'll wait outside. Rodriguez shook his head in feigned disappointment and pointed at Turner's tattoo. Senor, I thought you might enjoy being among your own kind. He laughed as Turner glared at him. Forgive my little joke, poor favor. He clapped his hands. Come, let us go into mi casa for some cervezas. There, Chiquita, Rodriguez placed a small square metal case on his living room table and a longer metal case beside his armchair. He opened the small case and turned it to face Sadie and Turner, who were seated across from him on a leather couch. Your special order, Rodriguez said. Inside the foam-lined case were what Turner recognized as tranquilizer darts that held a yellowish substance. I thought we were going after Volpone, not putting critters to sleep, Turner said. Then he realized Rodriguez was watching and listening. Shit, have I said too much? He turned to Sadie. Does he know about... Si, senor, Rodriguez interjected. Sadie has told me her plan. Are you going to fill me in, Turner asked. Sadie turned to face him. We're going to take Valpone down with these, she pointed to the darts. Turner looked at them. Is that yellow stuff what I think it is? Sadie nodded. Mojave venom. What Mateo was milking. She turned to Rodriguez. Can we see the rifle, Mateo? Rodriguez moved the dart case from the table, brought out the longer case and opened it. At first glance, Turner thought he was looking at a hunting rifle. Then he recognized the components of an air gun, long barrel, telescopic sight, wooden stock, compressed carbon dioxide cartridges. Turner inspected the pieces and returned them to the case. What kind of range does it have? he asked. More than enough to give you cover and hit Volpone, Sadie replied. That's why I brought you in. You're a marksman. I'm not. Who better to administer a lethal dose of venom than the snake? She laughed. Turner shifted uncomfortably in his seat. Why all this poison dart bullshit? Why not a bullet to the head? Bam, it's over. Because I don't want it to be over like that, Sadie said with a snarl as she snapped her fingers. Valpone's made a lot of people suffer, so I want him to suffer, to know something's wrong. Maybe realize he's dying. 
This is insane, Turner thought. Gotta talk her out of this. I heard that not many snake bites are fatal. Only if they're treated quickly, Sadie said. Even if his goons get to Valpone and get him to a hospital in short order, which they won't, they won't be able to tell doctors what's in his system, and the doctors won't have time to figure it out. So what happens to Valpone once he's hit? Let's see, she counted off on her fingers as she recited. Shortness of breath. Double vision. Difficulty swallowing and speaking. Nausea. Weakness or paralysis of the lower limbs. Involuntary tremors of facial muscles and respiratory failure. She turned to Rodriguez. That about cover it? See, Chiquita, Rodriguez smiled as he regarded Turner. This man who is bitten, he will soon be one of Los Muertos. With a dart, how long before he's dead, Turner asked. It's not instant like in the movies. Maybe ten minutes, maybe hours, Sadie shrugged. It doesn't matter. She stood and pulled her notebook computer out of her shoulder bag. Take care of this for me, will you, Mateo? Of course, Chiquita. Rodriguez took the laptop from her. Sadie faced Turner. I access my money from that. There's a sealed envelope with the password in a safe deposit box, and Mateo has the key. So it's in your best interest that we both return. Turner cursed silently. So that's her insurance. I'm stuck with the job. Solo un momento. Rodriguez hurried out of the room and returned with a black smartphone case with a small cartridge clipped to one side. For you, Chiquita. Sadie turned the case over in her hand as she examined it, then slipped her phone into it. Gracias, Mateo. De nada. What's that for? Turner asked. Extra protection. The cartridge holds pepper spray. It has a range of ten feet. She attached the phone to her shorts and tugged her T-shirt over it. We'd better get going. Pepper spray. Poison darts. I've got to be careful around her. But once I have my bonus, she's history. Turner picked up the cases. Where to now? Feeling lucky? Valpone's off to Vegas, and so are we. Sadie stepped out of the jeep and spun around to face Turner. How do I look? She was dressed in black capris and flats and a long-sleeved white shirt. Her blonde hair was tucked under a black bob with bangs wig. He grinned, like that broad in pulp fiction. It was two days later and they were parked beside a mountain lodge, a large A-frame log house with a wraparound deck, about an hour's drive from Las Vegas and accessible only by a dirt road that wound its way up through pines and aspens. Turner's smile quickly faded. I still don't like it. What if Valpone recognizes you? Why should he, she said. We've only met a few times when I was with Charlie, and even then, only briefly. I doubt he'd remember my voice. When I called him after I killed Charlie, I was all frantic whispers. Sadie patted her wig. Besides, I'm no longer a blonde. I'm supposed to be dead. I still can't picture Valpone coming here, she sighed in exasperation. I already told you, Valpone sees himself as a hunter, and there's plenty of game around here. Bighorn sheep, deer, mountain lions, 
Every year he takes his family to Vegas. They stay on the strip for the shows, and he comes up here with a couple of his boys, usually just the driver and a bodyguard, to hunt. He rents different spots, but there's always someone from the rental agency to meet him and hand over the keys. From my email and text surveillance, I found out when he was arriving. I phoned the agency, pretended to represent Valpone and told them he'd be a day late, but to hold his cabin reservation. No problem, they assured me. She paused. But Valpone is coming today. I'm the agency rep with the keys. Don't tell me you really have the keys, she laughed. Of course not, she paused. Now go over what you have to do. Turner pointed to a copse of pines about twenty yards away. I'll be over there, loaded and waiting. Once Valpone and his men move away from their car, I dart one guard. He goes down. I dart the other. You pepper spray Valpone, and then I dart him. That's it, she looked at her watch. You'd better set up. They should be here in about half an hour. As he headed for the trees with the rifle and dart cases, he thought of his own insurance, a glock in an ankle holster strapped to his right leg, hidden beneath his jeans. He had filled out the paperwork, allowing him to stow the gun in a locked case as part of his checked luggage on the Arizona flight. He'd declared it as required to the airline, but he hadn't told Sadie. Turner stood between a pair of trees, far enough away from the lodge that he wouldn't be spotted. As a black Lincoln town car pulled up in front of the lodge, he pressed the rifle stock against his right shoulder and lined up its scope. The two men emerged on the passenger side of the vehicle and one on the driver's side. Sadie, who'd been checking her smartphone on the deck, tucked it into her shoulder bag and stepped out to greet them. There was no mistaking Valpone, six feet tall, lean, slick back hair, aquiline nose and jutting chin. His two soldiers were slightly shorter than him, broad-shouldered and muscular. They wore standard hunting attire, plaid flannel shirts, jeans, boots, except for the Smith & Wesson handguns in shoulder holsters. Turner followed them with the scope as they moved toward Sadie. That's it, away from the car. They took a few more steps before Valpone held up his hand. He and his men stopped. So did Sadie. Who are you? Valpone demanded. Where is Dave? The agency always sends Dave. I'm Mia. Dave called in sick today, but he should be here tomorrow to see that you have everything you need. I'm here to let you in and give you the keys. Valpone hesitated. You look kind of familiar. Sadie laughed. I get that all the time. People say I look like Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction. She started to fumble in her tote bag. Now, where are those keys? Valpone's men moved to grab their guns. Relax, fellas. Why so jumpy? It's just my phone. She eased it out of the bag and held it up. See? The mobsters lowered their hands from their holsters. Okay, boys, get our gear. Valpone turned to Sadie. Let's see those keys. My cue. The rifle gave a soft pop as Turner fired. The dart hit one of the men in the thigh, prompting him to look down. What the fuck, he cried as he crumbled to the ground. 
Pop! Turner hit the second man below the knee, and he collapsed. Before Volpone could turn to see what was happening, Sadie blasted him with pepper spray. Arg! Volpone threw his hands up to his eyes, coughed and staggered backward. Sadie reached into his holster, grabbed his gun and flung it behind her. Pop! Turner sent a dart into Volpone's shoulder. Volpone's guards struggled to reach for their guns but failed. Sadie sprayed their faces and tossed their weapons aside. Then she stepped back and sat on the edge of the deck. Turner loaded another dart into the rifle, aimed at Valpone again, then swung the weapon around to put Sadie in the crosshairs. It would be so easy to do it, he hesitated. I can't. He fired a dart into Valpone's thigh. I need to collect my bonus first, he thought. He stepped out from behind the trees and sat down beside her. Now what? We collect the guns and darts, then head back to Mateo's. But for now, she pointed her chin at the mobsters, we wait for them to die. They sat in silence as Valpone and his men coughed, gasped, and moaned before they stopped breathing. Turner shuddered as CCR's bad moon rising came over the jeep's speakers. John Fogarty was warning about trouble on the way. He shook his head. Get a grip. It's just a song. Something wrong, Sadie asked. Want me to change the station? She'd gone back to wearing the Medusa t-shirt and denim shorts. Leave it on and keep going. He thought of the Glock strapped to his ankle. Bang, bang. No more Rodriguez. No more Sadie. Half an hour later, they pulled into Rancho Rodriguez. It was nearly dark, but there were no lights on inside the bungalow. Mateo, Sadie called as she stepped out from the jeep. We're here. There was no answer. Mateo. Turner stayed in his seat and turned toward the snake house. A short distance away, he saw the backhoe, mounds of dirt and a shovel. He eased the Glock out of its ankle holster, then turned, pointing the gun at Sadie and motioning her to get back into the jeep. Keep your hands where I can see him. She slowly opened the driver's door, raised her hands and slid into the seat. Senor, over here. The voice came from somewhere behind him, near the corner of the house. As he turned his head to see where Rodriguez was, he felt Sadie's hand slam into his neck. He cried out. She grabbed the gun hand and struck it against the dashboard. The gun fell to the jeep's floor. Pain shot up Turner's arm and around his neck. As he struggled to get his bearings, Sadie retrieved the Glock. He twisted in his seat to see Rodriguez advancing with the shotgun. He looked back at Sadie and saw her swing the gun at his back. Then everything went black. When he came to, Turner was lying face up, his hands taped in front of him. He swiveled his head to either side and saw walls of dirt about four feet high. A pit! His eyes widened. Help! He tried to move his feet, but they were also bound. His head and arm throbbed. He looked up to see a full moon in the night sky. He positioned his knees as if he were going to do sit-ups. Bending at the waist, he rocked forward, struggling to sit up. The effort left him panting. Sadie loomed over him. 
If you're thinking of yelling for help, save your breath. No one will hear you, she said. It's just you, me, Mateo, and the snakes. Dread washed over Turner. I did what you wanted. He bowed his head on his knees. Valpone's dead. Forget about the bonus. Just let me go. Sorry, Turner. I have a score to settle. I don't understand, he said. Maybe this will help. She placed a portable Bluetooth speaker at the edge of the pit, pulled an iPod from her shorts pocket, and poised her index finger over its face. This one's for you. Then Turner heard the opening sound effects of CCR's run through the jungle. Before I was Mercedes Evans, I was Mercedes Hunter, Sadie said, as John Fogarty started to sing. I'm Nate Hunter's daughter. Remember him? Turner collapsed on his back and shut his eyes. Hunter. The memories that Turner had tried to block out for years washed over him as he lay in the pit. It was 1994, about two months before Operation Uphold Democracy, intended to remove Haiti's military regime. His Delta Force unit, himself, Michael Doyle, Nate Hunter, Eric Grant, Reed Matthews, Mark Brady, had been assigned to destroy a barracks and ammunition depot in the Northwest. The plan called for a quick strike, land in a rigid inflatable boat on a beach about a half a mile from the target compound, located farther down the beach, conceal the Zodiac and edge through the jungle, skirting the beach under cover of darkness, plant plastic explosives and timers, begin to sneak back to the hidden boat, set off the explosives, head out to sea to be picked up by a Coast Guard cutter. The plan had gone smoothly, the beach landing, cutting through the razor wire, planting explosives, until he checked his watch. That's when he heard the chatter of automatic gunfire. One of his men had been spotted. Hunter, he turned to the operator who'd been working with him. Everything set? Ready to go off like the 4th of July. Then let's get the hell out of here. Turner dashed for the opening in the razor wire with Hunter close behind. He and Hunter waved through Doyle and Grant. Get to the boat. Hunter, you go with him. He turned back to face the compound and got his MP5 submachine gun ready. His last two men, Matthews and Brady, scrambled through the opening in the razor wire. Matthews had his right arm slung over Brady's shoulder. He'd been hit in the right leg. Gunfire sounded behind them. Move it! Move it! he urged as they limped along the beach toward the jungle. Suddenly a series of blasts shook the ground beneath him. Turner saw fires light up the night sky above the compound. Yes, he cried, raising a fist. Then he spotted Matthews and Brady sprawled in the sand, unmoving a few feet away. Nothing I can do for them, he thought. Have to save myself. He started running for the boat. Crashing through the jungle, he heard yells and sporadic gunfire behind him. He quickened his pace to take advantage of the Haitians' confusion. As he neared the rendezvous, he heard more gunfire just ahead of him. The shooting stopped seconds before he stumbled out of the jungle. In the moonlight, he could see their boat at the edge of the water and six bodies, four of whom he did not recognize. He quickly assessed what had happened. 
A Haitian patrol had surprised his men as they were dragging the boat toward the water. Everyone had opened fire. Hunter, Grant, and four Haitians had gone down. Where was Doyle? Don't shoot, Doyle stepped out from behind some foliage. Hunter thought he heard something and sent me out to take a look. I cut through the jungle and heard shots. That patrol must have come up the beach. I hurried back, but... He peered into the darkness behind Turner. Brady? Matthews? Dead, Turner shook his head. We gotta move. Get the boat into the water. As they got the boat into the water, they heard a groan from one of the bloodied bodies. Help me, Hunter's feeble voice croaked. Doyle started to move toward Hunter. Turner grabbed his arm, but Doyle twisted free. We can't leave Hunter, Doyle insisted. It's not right. Hear that? Sounds of yells and gunfire drew nearer. We don't have time. Leave him. We can't. I'm in charge, and I say we can. Turner fired at the bodies of Hunter and Grant. Blood mingled with the seawater. You want to join them? He pointed his gun at Doyle. Choose. Doyle glared at Turner in disgust, but pushed the boat into the water. They said nothing until they neared the pickup vessel. Leave the talking to me, Turner said. The target was hit, then everything went to hell. We lost some good men, but we're lucky to get out. End of story. My word against yours, so let's be on the same page, okay? Doyle stared at him for a moment. This'll come back to bite you, he said. Not if you go along. Your ass is in the same sling as mine. Doyle cast down his eyes and nodded. The higher-ups bought the story. He left the force. Doyle stayed. Case closed. But since then, everything in Turner's life had come up snake-eyes. Guns and explosives were his stock and trade, so he joined a private military company. But he balked at being a contractor in global hotspots. He drifted into the underworld, serving as muscle and a gun for hire for the mob. Working for the mob did not provide a windfall, so he tried to change his fortunes at the gambling tables. He enjoyed a modest winning streak, but greed got the better of him. Instead of cashing in, he'd ended up in the hole to Volpone. Then Sadie walked into the hideaway, and now he was in a far deeper hole. Run through the jungle faded into the desert night. It was cool, but Turner broke into a sweat. How much does she know, he wondered. He decided that pleading ignorance would be his best strategy. He looked up at Sadie. Nate who? Come off it, her voice was filled with disdain. My father was part of a raid on Haiti in 94. You led the unit. Six men went in. Only two came out. Turner swallowed hard. You've got it all wrong. No, I haven't, Sadie snapped. My mother and I heard all of it from Michael Doyle. I should have shot him when I had the chance, Turner thought. Whatever he told you was a lie. I don't see why a dying man would lie, she paused. We were living on the bays down here ten years after my father was killed. Doyle looked us up. He was dying of cancer. He wanted to atone for his sins, as he put it, and he figured we were owed the truth. He regretted not helping Dad, 
was ashamed of not saying what really happened that night. He told us how you killed him. She pointed to Turner's tattoo. And how we could pick you out. I didn't do anything. Liar, she screamed. She took a moment to compose herself. Okay, let's continue. My stepfather's okay, but Mum lost her soulmate, and I grew up without my real dad. We wanted justice. She ran a hand through her hair. Doyle told us you'd quit after the raid, and he didn't know where you were. Personnel records went as far as your discharge. That was the end of it for Mom. But I promised myself if I ever found you, I'd make you pay. How I'd find you, I had no idea, she paused. Things just happened. First Charlie, then Valpone, then you. Turner struggled back into a sit-up position. So, finding me was pure chance. I prefer to think of it as destiny, she said. Bullshit, like that so-called bonus. Mateo, she called over her shoulder, then looked back at Turner. Bonus? Your word, not mine. I'd said there'd be something extra for you. This is it. Turner bowed his head. No, no. Buenas noches, senor. Rodriguez was standing next to Sadie, holding a pair of snake tongs dangling a rattler. A Mojave for you. He dropped the snake into a corner of the pit. Turner pushed himself up against a dirt wall across from the snake. The Mojave hissed, coiled up, and rattled its tail. As he stared at it, wide-eyed, another one landed in his lap and slithered down his thigh. Better not move, Turner, Sadie said. You don't want to get them more agitated. What happened to that code of no one left behind, she said. Four men abandoned, four snakes for you. Poetic justice, I'd say. But please, Turner begged, get me out of here. Like you got my father out of Haiti, Sadie sneered. You murdered him. No, it wasn't. He looked down and screamed as a snake sank its fangs into his thigh. He felt another set of fangs bite into his neck. He felt nauseous. He looked up to see Sadie scoop a shovel full of earth and throw it down onto his lap. The snakes became agitated, slithered around his arms and legs, and bit again. From dust to dust, she threw more dirt on him before putting the shovel down and wiping her hands. Better get the backhoe going, Mateo, she looked down at Turner. Makes it so much easier to dig and fill in a grave. Turner tried to speak, but managed only a strangled groan. Sadie waggled the fingers of her right hand. Bye, Turner. Then she disappeared. Turner struggled to breathe. His legs stiffened. It can't end like this. It can't. A vision of the Medusa on Sadie's t-shirt floated before his eyes. He realized that, like the Gorgon's victims, he'd soon be stone cold dead. The last sounds he heard were the buzz from the rattlers and the rumble of a backhoe. The end. That has been Snakebit by Ed Pawarchuk. Ed is a veteran journalist, having worked as a copy editor for the National Post and Toronto Sun, and as
as an editor and reporter for the Sioux Star. As well, he has edited Harlequin novels on a freelance basis and is currently a freelance editor. A lifelong fan of crime fiction, he is also a film buff and plays in the Canadian Inquisition, a Toronto pub trivia league. His short fiction has appeared in World Enough of Crime, 13 O'Clock, 13 Claws, and The Whole Shebang 3. And now I'm happy to bring you our interview with Ed Pawarczyk. Let it rot. Hello. Hi, how are you this morning? How are you you doing? Good. Welcome to Dead to Rights. Oh, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on, Ed. I wanted to talk to you because um I try to address, for the most part, uh, writers, and in particular, new writers. And I know that you're a veteran journalist, and um, you worked for the National Post, the Sioux Star, the Toronto Sun. I know that you also used to edit for Harlequin, and I think that Harlequin's office was really close to where I worked at the time, wasn't it? Uh, It was, indeed. Mm -hmm. I used to see you running around with your bag of notes, and you you were editing for the Post at the time as well, and I think you were running back and forth between the two offices. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, I know uh, that you're both a lifelong fan of crime fiction, fiction, sorry, and a film buff. And you're also a top-notch and in-demand copy editor. And, um, Thank you. And that was one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you. That and your wonderful stories, of course. But uh, first and foremost, I want to ask you about your career as an editor and the importance of editing, especially for new fiction writers. Um, well, I think, uh, I'd say, my, my, my editing experience uh, started all with the, uh, you know, in my career in newspapers, and um, that kind of opened the door to doing uh, the work at Harlequin, because I could say, well, yeah, I did edit, you know, edit copy. Um, and so um, I think I think these things are, I think it's important for someone, you know, for any writer to have somebody edit their work, uh, simply because everybody's their own worst editor. They're not going to spot... You, you know, you finish something and you think, oh, this is, this is wonderful, and it probably is, but there are still going to be certain, certain things wrong, um, and you're going to want to have an outside uh, set of eyes look at it. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think, you know, for anyone starting out, um, you want to put your best foot forward if you're approaching uh, an agent or if you're approaching a publisher on your own without an agent, um, you know, obviously you have to follow whatever guidelines they have for submissions, but then once you've got your submission in, you want it looking the best you can. And if, if some, if an agent or an editor for a publisher uh, sees a lot of sloppiness in there in terms of, you know, there's typos, there's spelling mistakes, there's grammar mistakes, that's going to be off-putting, and they're not going to want to pick up your your work. Exactly. And, you know, I've heard I've heard writers argue, well, it's a brilliant story, and the story should speak for itself. Well, as a publisher, um, I think back to when I first started getting really serious about my fiction writing. My husband, who had edited his own business work for many, many years, he used to always tell me, 
anything that stops a reader in their tracks must go. Whether it's a typo, whether it's an awkward colloquialism, um, if it's an appropriate colloquialism, fine, but if it's awkward, it must go. If it's going to stop somebody and make them think that you've done something wrong, it has yeah. to go. Um, you know. Yeah, I say it's, it's like first impression. And then even if you're someone who decides, oh, I'm going to self-publish and just throw it up on Amazon um, or one of the other venues out there, um, if somebody comes across it and, again, if they, they start reading it and come across, maybe they won't recognize what it is that's putting them off, mm-hmm. but they'll recognize, they might not know, they might not, they might not know what it is, but they'll say, oh, this, this isn't good, and they'll, yeah. and they'll yeah. just put it aside. Yeah, or worse, they'll review it and they'll review it poorly. And um, this is something you really don't want on Amazon. Is you know we we all get these vandal reviews, the one star reviews by the people who obviously haven't read it. But when you get the legitimate poor reviews, the ones where they have read it and they're they're saying, you know, it's unacceptable for this reason or that, you really don't want that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And as you said, quite often we don't hear our own inner voices all that well. We don't, um, you know, that's why we really do need someone outside of ourselves yeah. to look at oh, that. Yeah. So like whenever I've written um, any of the stories that have been published um, in the various, in the Carrick anthologies, um, like the Maydams and the World Enough in Crime, mm-hmm. um, Rosemary's always, you know, I've followed, you know, like, you know, worked on it. Know, Rosemary's had a look, and then you know she'll spot the you know she'll you know she'll have some suggestions, and you know you go and have a second look, and you you know tinker with it a little bit more. So, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and as you said, you've had stories in World Enough and Crime, Thirteen O'Clock, Thirteen Claws, and the whole Shebang Three, which is the Sisters in Crime right. anthology, the latest yeah. one. And I've got to tell you, your stories are are brilliant and meticulously oh, plotted. You. They're um. They're, they're, I would call them noir. They're very well written. And, um, and as you said, you have Rosemary's set of eyes to help back up your editor's eyes. So even yours, as well written as they are, you still have them outside editing, well, don't I believe you? In, yeah, I believe in, and then Rosemary will ask me when she's, when she's working on something, she'll ask me to have a look. So we do look at each other's work and offer, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And offer, yeah. our, <coughs> offer our suggestions. Yeah, now Alec and I do the same thing, and um, right. I-, I wanted to ask you how it is being a writing couple for you guys, because uh, for us it's been really, it's been a lot of fun, but I've had people make comments to me about, you know, how does that work? Do you come to hate each other? Uh, <laughs> I think people have an no, no, odd... We, no, we, we, we just, I mean, we all, we each have our separate uh, projects to work on, and it's only when we, you know, if I wrap up a story or when Rosemary's got a manuscript completed, then... Um, you know, then, you know, she'll, you know, I'll ask her to look at mine or, but, you know, we don't really sit and work together on a particular story. It's just like, you know, we're, we're showing each other either a work in progress, like Rosemary well, might ask me to read a chapter of, of, of a manuscript she's working on or, or, a, you know, or a story she's completed and I'll ask her to look at, here's the story I've finished and then. You know, we and then we offer our you know our suggestions uh, for, for each other, but we don't sit up where I don't know how other people would work in terms of 
collaborating directly in terms of you're both sitting there side by side. Yeah, um, no, we don't do that either. We each have our own work, same same as you. On the same story, Mm -hmm. same novel, um, you know, you're, you know, you each, you know, each of us has, you know, has our own project and then, but we kind of turn to each other to kind of uh, for suggestions. Yeah, we do the same. And in particular, things like, well, editing, of course, we copy edit for each other. And the other thing that we do is um, we come together when it comes to titles, because titles are really important um, to us. Um, You know, I mean, putting a really good handle on your work, I think is really important. You've put so much effort into it. You know, and you want to give it, and I, I want to talk to you because about Snake Bit, which appeared in 13 Claws. And the reason is because by the time you and I are speaking now, our listeners will have already heard me read Snake Bit, and it's a really wonderfully oh. contrived story. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Uh, well, uh, I don't, I'll leave the pleasure of reading the, um, the whole story to, to the readers, but. Um, it's something that took a little bit of research. I mean, I, it was one of these things that um, I had originally, you know, started like a, a, another idea completely. Um, but I had an open, you know, I you know I had an opening scene in mind, and I had another scene in mind. Um, but I, you know, I kind of didn't quite couldn't quite get over the hump, so I kind of put it aside for a bit. And then when I returned to it, when it was time for Thirteen Claws. Uh, that's when I kind of thought of the, the snake angle. And then I had to do some research into, you know, say, well, what kind of, you know, what kind of rattlesnakes are there and how dangerous are they or how venomous are they? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, the, you know, and then to know there, well, that I won't be giving anything away, but there was at, at one point, uh, I have, you know, there's a person who's, uh, basically dealing with uh, collecting snake venom that's used in research. Uh, so that, you know, that kind of thing, uh, that, that kind of thing I had to kind of look up and find out, well, how do these people extract venom from the snake? Mm-hmm. So, so that, you know, to, in order to create one scene, one scene in the story. So, um, so research so is really important too for a well constructed story. Um, would you agree with that, Ed? Um, sorry, what's? I think important? research is really important. Oh, absolutely, because because if you don't, if you get something wrong, somebody out there is going to say, "Wait a minute, that's not right." You know, mm-hmm. so it's a, especially if you're doing anything historical, it's just like you better have the details. Exactly. The history buffs are going to get you for sure. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like, because, like, sometimes you come across, um, you know, um, you know, in a manuscript, some reference to some kind of, well, I guess an obvious example would be a a model of automobile. And if you're, depending on when the story is set, they may say, wait a minute, they didn't start producing. It's set in, say, 1954, then they might say, oh, wait a minute, they didn't produce that model until 1957. Or, yeah. You know, so there are, there are things like that, or, or you know, the movies of the day, the books of the day, the songs of the day, um, or, you know, even the fashion of the day, when yeah. this come on, or, yeah. or, or something like if, um, you know, or even things, uh, even like little, you know, when did, you know, cell phones well if you're setting a story in the you know 1970s cell phones weren't around yeah 
you know, um, so it's just... And cell phones are a big one. I mean, the modern technology is a big one people get tripped on. I know I've been caught up in it a couple of times, and thank God people have caught it for me, and I've been able to fix it before it goes to publication. Uh, But because I've raised three kids, and their their ages are 33, 20, and 16 right now. So I've had them in all various times and all various levels of technology that would have been available at the various points. And sometimes I'll forget when I'm trying to place in a certain point in time, which kid was it and what technology yeah. were they using at the time, you know? Right, right, I mean, you can't yeah. have a kid in the 1980s playing, um, you know, video games on their smartphone. You know, yeah. you've got to have them rigged with a Game Boy or something like that, yeah. for example. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, for sure. For mm-hmm. sure. Now, you also play something called the Canadian Inquisition which is a Toronto Pub Trivia League. Is that right? That's correct. Tell, yeah. tell me a little bit about that, because that, I'm sure, plays into your, your uh, love for research. Well, it, it's, it's, you know, it says, it's say, like, um, you know, Rosemary all, often compares it to Trivial Pursuit, and it's not. The way, the way our particular league works is that um, one, you know, there are two divisions, and, you know, they, you know, people play against each other, but basically... At the you know there's a ten week season. At the end of the season, there's a championship, and you know prizes are awarded. Um, in terms of an individual game, there are ten rounds. Um, you have like five players per side, and there's uh, always a current events round, Canadian, history, arts and literature, science and nature, audio, um, geography. What am I missing? In any event, and then the, the last round is one called a challenge round, which is sort of a miscellaneous mix of couplets that, you know, people choose, one, you know, something in a particular couplet as their, you know, last question of the night. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's very, you know, it's very, it's very, you know, and basically in this league, each season, and there are t- three 10-week seasons to the calendar year, so right, right now we're in our so-called summer season, um, one team kind of sits out and writes all the questions and uh, looks after uh, you know scheduling, statistics, etc. And then you know the next season another team will do this. So there's a rotation. Everybody has to have their turn in terms. Well, of that's really cool. Yeah, I like that. How many times do you meet through the year? Uh, well, as I say, there are three ten-week seasons to the calendar year. So our so this particular season, um, oh, you don't play on a on a holiday weekend like Victoria Day, mm-hmm. you know, Canada Day. Um, so basically, three ten week seasons to the calendar year, and uh, uh, so that's um, you know every so every every team is going to be a little bit different in how they approach setting the questions, or you know, because we you know some some teams gonna, are going to have some older players, some some younger ones, so the questions are going to be yeah, well, somewhat little different, you know, from you know, the approach taken by you know the previous team. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so it's, yeah, so it's a, yeah, it is it is a lot of fun, and but when you're setting the if it's your turn to set the questions. It can be, it's a lot of work and you have to, you know, and you have to be careful in terms of, well, you know, you don't want to make things 
don't want to make a question too obscure, but on the other hand, you know, these are bright people. You don't want to make it too, you know, too easy either. Mm-hmm. So you have to strike mm-hmm. a fine balance. Um, you got to find the you know. level, exactly. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so, so that's that's got to be a little bit challenging, but uh, yeah. sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you on the topic of editing, the biggest difference between editing for news and editing for Harlequin novels or even crime novels, maybe the three things, um, what would you find are the, the big features that kind of define each of those types of editing? Um, well, I mean, obviously, if you're doing it for a newspaper, you're, you're, you're basically looking to make, well, you're looking for the basic typos, grammar, uh, spelling, uh, but you're, you know, you're also looking at you know the, the the content to make sure that that's right, and if there's something that pops out at, if you, at you that isn't right, then you kind of go you'd go back to to either the reporter or to the reporter's um, you know department head and say, well, I don't think this is you know this is are you sure about this? Or, mm-hmm. you know, and then and then in that and then you also have to be careful um, in terms of the legal ramifications of what somebody's writing, like if there's, you know, you know is this libelous, is mm-hmm. it, you know, slanderous in any way. Um, so, the, you know, so that's the kind of thing you'd be looking for if you're uh, working on newspaper. In terms of um, Harlequin, um, the, I, I think this probably holds for all, all publishers. They have their own set of guidelines. So, um, and the, so they have certain things like style points they have things they want you know and when I when I say style points I mean you know in some cases that's a spelling thing in some cases it's some they don't want to see this word or that word and there's also certain subjects that may be taboo to them mm-hmm. um, so that that's the type of thing like you'd say and then and somebody and then a Harlequin has a number of lines so each line in there when I say line I mean like a set of like this might be romantic suspense this might be um, you know straight romance like so each when I say line like there'll be there'll be books that are, that are in that so rather line. subgenres is that yeah so, uh... yeah, so it's sort of and, it, and so that they each each of those would have its own particular guidelines as well of, of what of what you can or cannot do or what's allowed and so like you're keeping so you're you've got that to you know make just make sure they're they're adhering to whatever the guidelines are for that for that subgenre and then you're but and then you're still going back to the uh, the whole thing with the typo spelling grammar mm-hmm. syntax and then the, and then the same thing and then that would also hold for 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 a crime or mystery novel, you're still like you know on the one level you're the you're the um, God, you're you're the person looking for the typos, the grammar, the spelling, and then but you're also and this holds for any of the Harlequin things you're looking for any inconsistencies and you're looking for con- consistency in style, but you're mm-hmm. you know you're going the same way all the way through. But also, you're looking for any inconsistencies in the content, and I guess a favorite thing would be, and this would apply to any fiction, I guess, let's say you're reading through and on page five, uh, the heroine's eyes are blue, 
and on page 15, the heroine's eyes are brown. Well, and that's interesting. Which is it? Which is it? <laughs> you know, it's got to be one or the other, but that does have, that has, you know, I've had that with some Harlequin things. I said, yeah. Well, and I just made a note. My, my thoughts, like, it goes, the way Harlequin worked is, I don't know if it still does this way, but it went back to some other editor with my notes, and then it's up to them to take it from there. Mm-hmm. So, no, mm-hmm. I just make notes. Say, well, you know, here it was this. Here it's this. Which should it be? You know, uh, check with the author. Which should it be? And this, you know, yeah, no. yeah. And I would think that you would run along uh, sometimes chronological inconsistencies. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes people like to kind of jump back and forth in time, which is okay as long as, as you say, there's some consistency in terms of what's happening in the given period so mm-hmm. um you know like you know so chapter one may be set in 1945 and chapter six in 1967 and then chapter 10 and you know back in 1942 or something it was like it's you know it's it's tricky to do something like that so you, somebody would have to be very careful in terms of their t- they'd have to have worked out their timeline before yeah. Yeah, they'd have to have uh, a storyboard so like on the go. If this character really. doesn't appear until 1960, we can't have them in the chapter in 1954. You know, mm-hmm. like, so there's got to be some, yes, some chronology, timeline, timeline thing if you're going to try and do something that where you're jumping back and forth in time. But yeah. I don't think that's something I'd try personally. <laughs> or at least know, write the two storylines independently and then intersperse them, you know, or yeah. have a strong storyboard at your side while you're working. Um, what trends do you see happening now in crime fiction in particular? Oh, that's a good question. I, I don't, I haven't really given any thought to that. What I, you know, I just think, you know, in like there are all kinds of, you know, good writers out there. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't know that, um, you know, people say that, you know, you get, you go to, sometimes you go to, um, you know, book shows or things where people say, oh, I don't really read mysteries, but I'll bet those same people go home and watch CSI or something. Oh, I'll so bet they do. That. Yes. So yes. it's not that they don't, or they, they just simply don't recognize that that's what they're doing. Yes. And so, and so, you know, like yours, there's, in terms of your writing, then it just means, well, there's another, um, you know, besides the traditional novel or short story, um, well, there are all these venues, like these limited series on, uh, you know, on HBO or Netflix that mm-hmm. are, you know, um, or so like, you know, you may not be writing the traditional novel, but you may decide, well, I've got a story that I could sell or I can try to sell to to uh, some producers working in, in television. And some of those series are really brilliantly written. I mean, yeah. hats and off then, to the writers of something like The Americans, for example. I mean, it was just, it was stunningly brilliant, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's, it's very, it's, it's, you know, so I think there's probably, I, you know, I don't think the mystery is about to go away. Like, you know, as, um, how many people read it? I, I, I mean, I don't know, but it, I don't think it's going away. It's no, gonna, I don't I, either. I, I, I agree. It's, it, it's going to, you know, the books, you know, like 
ebooks are out there as well as traditional you know paperbacks and hardbacks so mm -hmm. and then let's say with the proliferation of things on all the different specialty channels on television um, you know you get the, the, the so-called long-form series of things like the sopranos or mm -hmm. you know you know like so it's just like you know like there's there's a lot of you know there's a, a well i guess if you're a writer depend you know like if you want to try to tackle that medium but then again the mediums are each going to have their own rules so you're going to have to be um you know you're going to have to be <laughs> very well cognizant of what of what those things are mm -hmm. yeah you got to be well versed and i think you've got to have a pretty strong story arc over a number of seasons too um if you're oh, gonna yeah. if you're gonna Absolutely. write for that if you're, if you're gonna try something like that but then that's all i think i think somebody would, would start out just saying well i'd like to you know let's try my hand at a novel or you, you got you know it'd be nice to have a calling card if yeah you, even if you're going to um you know even if you're going to something like uh, you know some kind of long form things where um the i guess the creator of the series would be the one who has the long the long-term story arc in mind and mm -hmm. you know, so, yeah so uh and you know you'd have to as if you were hired to work on one of those things but yeah you know, exactly you know, you'd be part it's, of not, it's not you know you've got to follow this arc you know you can't be wandering around on completely on your own into a whole other you know storyline you've got this is the one you have to stick to exactly yeah. and you talked about calling cards and i think that that's really important i think a lot of writers really underestimate the importance of having some work to your credits and um you know so it's a fine line between just pumping out something that is kind of uh sub quality but to get something out there to your credit and start building your credits as a writer, your your street creds, your lit creds, I guess you would call them. <laughs> um, you know, it's just really important because everybody looks everyone up now. And so if you're approaching a, an agent, a publisher, um, one of these uh, TV writing series uh, people, um, you've got to have a calling card. You've got to have something that they can go online. Well, you want to have something to show them. You want to have something that that looks good, and, and and hey, if you've won an award for something you've done, you know, yeah, yeah, by all means, like uh, you know, uh, you know, have that have that as part of your uh, resume. Exactly, and have that work well edited because they can go and look up your title, and they can read the first few pages online, and. Um, Believe me, a good editor can tell within the first five pages whether you've put the effort in. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'd say it's important to you know that first impression uh, is important, and and uh, you know telling somebody, oh, it really gets good on page fifty. That's not going <laughs> to cut it. It's not going to. It's just you know if it's really good, get you know. That and a buck fifty will get you a small coffee. Not yeah. Page 50. They're not going to read to page 50. Exactly. If it gets good on page 50, then I suggest you chop <laughs> off page 1 through 49. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
point. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I hear you. I'm exactly with you on that, Ed, really. Well, Ed, it's been a great pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. And I hope that Thank listeners you. are uh, hearing what you say about the need to have your work edited. And um, how can people find you and how can they reach you? Um, well, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on Facebook and then, um, uh, you know, I can be reached by, you know, by phone or email. Um, edp.alpha at rogers.com is an email address and uh, I am on Facebook uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'll put some I, links in the show notes on how they can how they can connect with you too um, and yeah so that, I guess email would probably be the best yeah exactly I don't I don't I'm not I'm not on Facebook constantly as although some people are but I'm not one of them Mm-hmm. I do go to Facebook, and I have a Facebook account, but it's just a personal account. It's not yeah, I'll make sure that I put a link to your, your email address on the show notes no. so that people can reach you. And I highly recommend your editing work. Um, yeah, uh, for well, our listeners, you. Ed has worked on pretty much, all, I think, all but one of the Carrick Publishing anthologies. Um, certainly all the Sisters in Crime anthologies, and um, it, oh, those are just... Sorry, I'm sorry, Donna. I haven't worked on the Sisters in Crime anthologies. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to say Sisters in Crime. I meant to say Maydams of Mayhem. Maydams, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let me say that again. <laughs> okay. It has worked on almost all of the Carrick Publishing anthologies, including the Maydams of Mayhem anthologies, and um, they are beautifully edited. And we thank you for your work on those, Ed. Well, thank you. And uh, I thank you for joining us on Dead to Rights. And thank you for having me here today. Excellent. I want to thank Ed for joining us today on the podcast. Be sure to join us next week when we'll bring you our interview with mystery author Edith Maxwell. And for our readers on the run, my reading of The Peace of Mind Thief by Alec Carrick from Three Scoops is a Blast, Carrick Publishing. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, at www.donnacarrick.com or on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick. My husband, Alec Carrick, tweets at Alex underscore Carrick, and his website is A-L-E-X-C-A-R-R-I-C-K dot com. We still have a couple of 2018 interview slots available. If you're a published author and would like to appear on Dead to Rights with Donna to talk about your work, email me at carrickpublishing at rogers dot com and mention Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, who also brought us all original story scoring music. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Dead to Rights podcast.
dusty road, man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me We'd never be in the same boat for free Yet it rides Let it ride